Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. There's been lots said about the decision by Facebook to restrict what users of its platform are allowed to share. But we haven't yet heard from Jeff Sparrow, long-time Triple R broadcaster and now lecturer in the lecturer in the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. It's great to have you. Morning, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, so by now, some people predicted that Facebook might have wound things back after making its point. Not so as far as I can see. Where do you think this might be leading? Well, of course, the stuff that's happening here in Australia has implications all over the world. So there's a lot at stake for both sides. I mean, this is something that the murder empire has been pushing for for a long time. But, you know, obviously for both Facebook and Google, they have interest in Australia, but they're the quintessential world companies. So I think everyone watching this is taking the ramifications um, very seriously and I think that they're both going to fight it as hard as they can. What's your sense of the actual news bargaining code itself, Jeff? I mean, do you think it it does serve as a, uh, a mechanism for appropriately um, sort of, you know, funneling money back into media organisations in Australia? No, it's a, it's, it's a ludicrous um, measure. Look, you know, what we saw... Um, the other day with Facebook um, using its algorithms to prevent people from sharing Australian news is a pretty good indication that there's something fundamentally wrong with um, the way we access news here in Australia and the control that major corporations um, exert over it. And so, yes, we should welcome um, regulation, but this is a very strange way... To, to, to go about. And after all, we have a system by which governments can um, take money away from large corporations and plough that money into socially desirable outcomes like, you know, funding journalism, and that mechanism is called the tax code. But instead of that, what the government is, um, is attempting to implement is a model that has been pushed by Murdoch for a long time essentially takes money away from these big companies and distributes it, distributes, distributes that money to other big companies, specifically um, the Murdoch Empire, Nine, and other media conglomerates. And, you know, I, you can think of all sorts of other ways that um, journalism could have been funded. I mean, it would have been perfectly possible to, you know, tax Facebook and, and Google and to set up some kind of new mechanism by distributing that to, to you know, to to socially useful journalistic projects, but just funneling money to major corp- from one corporation to another is a very um, dubious way to go about it and one that's going to have, I think, really dangerous implications um, going forward. Yeah, I want to talk about those dangers, but I, I guess it's worth pointing out that Triple R's Facebook page has been affected, um, like other publishers, and actually it says no posts yet despite having tens of thousands of page followers and years of multiple posts per day. And, you know, call me petty, but it's actually, it's just patently wrong that that, that Triple R and other publishers have made no posts yet. Um, what, what, how do you respond to that? I'm just probably just getting my, my shackles up oh, no, a bit. No, 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 it's I, just I, like I, inaccurate. 
Look, I think you're right and everyone's right to be outraged about this. It's an extraordinary situation where Facebook has such incredible power to determine, you know, what news people um, get to see and, and, and don't get to see. And, you know, you can imagine all sorts of circumstances where that could be uh, abused in horrendous ways. So that level of corporate power is exceedingly dangerous. But again, we're also seeing that from the other side as well. So, for instance, all of the major um, media platforms are pushing to support this code because they will benefit financially extraordinarily from this um, uh, from from the money coming from. Google and Facebook, and because these platforms are all uh, all have a material interest in, in the code, what we're seeing is a situation where very few journalists are prepared to, you know, to, to give a fair analysis of the situation because they have a material interest in what's being proposed. And so, what we're seeing on both sides is a, a really clear demonstration of the danger of corporate ownership the media and the way it distorts the news that we get. And it seems to me, you know, it makes a really strong case that we need a fundamentally different way of thinking about journalism and um, and providing the resources for journalists to do their jobs, because when they are so shaped by corporate interests, that has a real effect on, um, you know, what we see and what we don't see. Yeah, and I mean, this is all happening as there's a parliamentary inquiry into media diversity in Australia, and, you know, we all know about all those um, newsroom closures throughout the pandemic, and particularly how regional and local news was affected by that. But I think you're right, there hasn't been that level of critical commentary around what this code would actually do to support that journalism that really is under threat, um, you know, severely in, in some places in particular and is lacking at the moment. I mean, do you think there will be any push or any momentum in that direction at all coming out of this? Because I noted, I mean, along with Triple R, there's other independent media organisations who have worked really hard to build up kind of a sustainable business model, but have had that essentially wiped away by Facebook not posting their, um, you know, articles and, and news items on their page. I mean, they've become reliant on these big platforms. So where do you think that conversation goes from here? Yeah, that's that 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 that's right. I mean, these are such important um, issues. So, uh, News Corp has been pushing for this for a version of um, of this legislation for a long time, and they will be um, the major um, beneficiaries of you know of, of the income that's generated from essentially a form of a form of rent-seeking. I mean, so what you're seeing, you're seeing various liberal commentators saying, okay, journalism is in crisis. Um, There there is no longer a sustainable business model for journalism. Something needs to be done. But essentially the argument follows from that. Something needs to be done. This is something. We must do it. Which doesn't... It doesn't really follow in the same kind of way. So the argument that's being put um, is that this money will go to places like Nine and to um, to Murdoch and will, and will then be used to, you know, to, to, to fund more journalists and more journalism. But there's no guarantee that that will happen at all. Just because you give a lot of money to a major corporation, it doesn't follow you're going to spend that money on, you know, socially useful journalists. And, in fact, the way that business works is that when businesses have money to invest, they invest that in the areas that are most profitable and almost by definition, 
um, funding journalists, journalists isn't profitable, otherwise they would be doing it already. So what we're seeing is um, News Corp being given a huge lifeline by the government um, you know, for obvious political reasons. I mean, this is, a, this is a government that, you know, has relied really heavily on the backing of um, the Murdoch uh, media empire, and by throwing this them this bone is pretty much guaranteeing that that coverage um, will continue. So Murdoch will be the big winner. Um, we will be uh, the loser. And I think it's one of these fights where both sides are, um, you know, these undemocratic monster corporations that urgently need to be reined in. But, you know, that doesn't mean that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. In fact, they both need to be regulated. I was going to ask you that question, but you already answered it yourself. I'm Jess Farrow's with us. And, um, well, then, what about the Morrison government? I mean, from what I understand, this is playing well for them. Is that right, Jeff? I think it's with the electorate, maybe a, I'm asking, I mean? I, I mean, I think it's maybe a little bit too, um, too soon to tell exactly how this is going to play out with people. I mean, I think a lot of ordinary punters who don't necessarily follow the ins and outs of political debates that closely will be quite shocked to see their Facebook feed um, shift so markedly, but it's not clear, at least it's not clear to me, exactly who most people would blame for that, whether they would blame Facebook or whether they would um, blame uh, the, the government. I mean, certainly a lot of people have you know, a genuine and richly deserved hostility to Facebook for all the reasons that we all kind of know, whether or not the government can successfully channel that hostility into um, support for this kind of rent-seeking operation that, that the Murdoch press has been pushing for isn't kind of um, isn't yet clear. And I think this has still got a long way to, to play out. As we said right at, at the top, this issue has implications all over the world. So, you know, I think both parties, everyone involved in it will be thinking about their moves very, very clear, very, very carefully. And this seems like an incredibly kind of complex and messy way to go about things. I mean there's this um, kind of, you know, hissy fit that, that Facebook's thrown and, and you know, shown their power really um, by sort of you know, essentially banning news, um, Australian news on their pages. But meanwhile, Google has kind of negotiated independently with media organisations as well in a way of, to kind of get around that code as well. Do you think internationally in thinking about those broader implications, um, governments might be looking at this and thinking, oh, that's really not a way to go, a good way to go about things? Or are they rather kind of watching the brinkmanship and seeing, OK, we might be able to leverage Facebook in this way um, to implement a similar kind of code um, in, in, in a different context? Yes, I think it's probably more the latter. What we're not seeing is serious thinking about, OK, we have a genuine problem with um, the, the old business models that supported you know, the media infrastructure on which civil society depends, how might we maintain journalism into the 21st century and how might we, you know, support something that has an important social function? I mean, if you think about it, how did the ABC itself come into existence? In, it came into existence in a situation that was not so different um, than the one that we face today, where this new medium of radio was um, 
you know, had been had, had been invented, but it was clear that the private sector was not going to roll it out in a way that would be would en- enable it to you know, provide the social use that it was capable of. You know, it wasn't going to reach com- country areas. It wasn't going to provide adequate levels of news and so on. And there was a clear need for policy interventions to allow this to to to, to happen. The problem is today that we have such a lack of public policy imagination and public policy courage that we're incapable of making the the sort of bold interventions that led to something like the ABC all of those years um, ago. And instead, it's simply a case of, okay, which massive corporation are you going to support? Which one do you like better, Facebook or or, or Murdoch? And, And of course, that's not um, you know, a real choice. I mean, you could do something as simple as, you know, set up a model, something like the Australia Council for the Arts, where, you know, you, you, you tax these major corporations, you take that pot of money, you set up a, you know, a, a peer group assessment to judge, you know, what journalistic projects this will fund and away you go. Like, that's not the only model, but it's not very difficult to think of ways that one could, you know, provide publicly funded journalistic models that have, you know, much greater sense of social accountability. But we're not even talking about those models. What we're talking about is how to transfer money from one major corporation to another. Oh, you're talking about it though, Jeff. (laughs) Yes, well, that's what Triple R is for, isn't it? (laughs) Thank you so much. It's really great speaking with you as always. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Jeff Sparrow, he's a lecturer in the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, a long-time Triple R broadcaster, of course. And I'm going to put in a, um, an encouragement in the, in the back of the, at the back of this interview and say there's never been a better time to sign up to the Triple R newsletter, which comes out every Monday afternoon and it has news highlights for the week and it hits your inbox and you will be able to see it. So we very much encourage you to do that or head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And many people would describe Australia as a peaceful country. But in fact, for those born in the period since the 9-11 attacks in 2001, they've grown up in an era of war. The war on terror, on climate, on refugees, on science and culture. And these wars have left traces on this generation of Muslim and non-Muslim youth who are right now coming of age. This is one of the many important insights that Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah provides in her latest latest book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror. Randa is a prominent Australian-Palestinian advocate and a multi-award winning author of over a dozen books. She is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Sociology at Macquarie University as well. And uh, Randa joins us by phone. Welcome to Triple R. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, tell us the story of this book, Runda. What prompted you to investigate how today's political and, and social climate is impacting on young people coming of age right now? So I did a PhD um, in around 2013, 2014, um, looking at Islamophobia and race in Australia from the point of view of the perpetrators. So I was interviewing people who were 
very much um, adamant that Australia should return to a white Australian policy, um, that they wanted, you know, abortion clinics set up in Muslim-majority suburbs. So people who were very much on the extreme and then people who were more ambivalent about Muslims um, and, you know, didn't mind Muslims as long as they followed Australian values and, you know, followed our rules and laws. So it was like a whole spectrum of looking at the, you know, from the white supremacist to the I'm not racist because I eat kebabs and have a Muslim friend kind of type and really trying to understand and unpack Islamophobia and race in Australia. And when I finished, I, you know, I realised as I kept thinking about sort of the findings from that research that these people were constantly regurgitating media headlines and um, rhetoric that was reinforced by politicians. Um, there, there was almost like this circuit of hate speech and circuit of stereotypes and misinformation that they were wholeheartedly um, believing and, and rehashing to me. And then in 2015, I was attending a school in a suburb in Sydney that has a large um, Arab Muslim population in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, I was there you know, to talking about my books and, and writing. And um, 2015 was a particularly volatile time. Uh, it was a time when countering violent extremism programs were being, um, you know, uh, introduced into schools and the rhetoric was really ramped up after, um, you know, what happened in the, uh, the Link Cafe siege and then the tragic death of um, the police accountant, Curtis Cheng in Parramatta. So there was a, a feeling of um, hyper-attention and surveillance on Muslim communities. And then a boy called Bilal came up to me after I spoke and said to me that school had been the one place that he had always felt safe. So when he was out, you know, in the streets, he said, you know, you know, the cops would treat me as just another leb. Um, you know, I was always getting into trouble with having to, you know, answer for myself at school. You know, it was a safe space, but I doesn't feel that way anymore. I have to watch what I say in class. And it got me thinking about what that really means and, and how tragic it is if young people don't feel that school is a place where they can experiment with their politics and their beliefs and their opinions. You know, I, I keep thinking that if if I was growing up, if, if there was the same level of surveillance and attention to Muslims as there was when I was growing up, I would probably have been the subject of CVE policies because I went through, you know, my own periods of extreme and, and sort of um, views that the majority, uh, you know, white Australia would consider would consider so-called radical, you know, I was, uh, that's the time in your life when you are trying to push boundaries and understand and interpret the world you're living in. For me, that just prompted me on a path to thinking about, well, why is it that a young person feels this way? What What is happening in, or what has happened in the war on terror to create this atmosphere um, and this political climate in which young people feel this chilling effect of policies? Um, and that's, what got me started on this research path. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, uh, I mean, you mentioned sort of 2015 as a particular, I guess, um, flashpoint or, or giving rise to a climate yeah. that was particularly um, kind of prejudiced against, uh, you know, people of, of Muslim or, or Arab appearance in the community. Of course, September 11, 2001 is, is another, you know, very significant flashpoint often pointed to in, in terms of the range of security policies that the government um, introduced after that time, but also of, of giving rise to a particular kind of stigma um, about um, Muslim people in the community. How does the experience of these students that you've interviewed for this book kind of compare with your experience growing up in Australia before that time? 
Yeah, so well, the first thing I would say is that I do have a pre and post nine eleven um, kind of uh, sense to my life, mm. um, and it, it, that's not to say that when I was growing up in the nineties, you know, and in the eighties, that um, I didn't experience marginalisation or the feeling that I was part of a minority. My sort of coming of age took place at the, in the time of the first Gulf War. So I was in year seven when the first Gulf War happened, and it directly impacted my life. Um, I was attending an Islamic school and we had a pig's head thrown in the office window and arson attack, you know, regular graffiti on the walls and school buses. So at that time, though, my, uh, you know, my otherness um, and the fact that I was a problem was not not because of my Muslimness as much as it was as my Arabness. So mm-hmm. that was the issue. Um, you know, the idea that you were loyal to Saddam Hussein and this entire Arab community was under suspicion. And then I'm, I'm Palestinian background as well. So the, um, the, the suspicion of Palestinians and political activity was also something that impacted my family directly. But, uh, you know, uh, when I finished university, when I was at university, I was working um, as a media officer in an Islamic council in Melbourne, and I was very much um, sort of part of a, uh, an activist group um, community that was still very young in terms of understanding how to even be activists. Um, you know, that was very much about trying to explain Islam, trying to demystify and break down stereotypes. But then after 9-11, you realised that there, was no, there wasn't much we could say. The, the sort of the barrage of misinformation and the determination to, to uh, create the Muslim community in terms of moderates and extremists, two camps, where you had to pick one, um, it, it was so pervasive that there was very little that we could do that was going to really address the root causes of what was happening. So for me, that's been a long journey and a long process to understand how to do that. And I think uh, young people today are experiencing Islamophobia and race on a completely different scale. And I'll just give you an example of how I know that, not just my lived experience, but um, my first book, Does My Head Look Big News, came out in 2005. And it's very much a book um, you know, that's based on a 9-11 world. Actually, I wrote the first draft when I was 15. So I wrote the first draft in the 90s when I went back and rewrote it, it was, you know, a post-9-11 Bali bombings world. So we are adapting it as a feature film. Um, and we have had to significantly escalate the Islamophobia and political climate in which the main character is growing up in the film, which shows you that after 15 years, things haven't improved. They're actually worse. That's very sobering for me. Um, but also it, it shows to me how racism and Islamophobia have become more sophisticated in the way they've evolved um, and how much more normalised and, uh, and that sort of environment has become. Uh, your great respect for young people shines through this book, Rhonda, and I wonder, I mean, one, how did you go about selecting people to, to be, I guess, your, your research subjects? I don't know if that's the right way to describe it um, as part of it, but also, um, you know, tell us some of the things that you learnt from young people today that really stood out to you. Uh, it's the the best part, the biggest privilege to be able to go into schools and meet young people. Um, They always keep you on your toes and um, they really helped me work through my own assumptions and expectations and prejudices about what I thought I would find out of the research, which is always the best thing, to go in and be surprised by your findings. Um, So it was really a matter of um, a snowball effect. I I already had contact with one school, an Islamic school in Sydney, um, and just meeting people there, you know, they were able to 
to suggest another school, got in contact with a teacher there, um, very keen on me getting into the school to run the writing workshops and interview the students. Um, the, oh, you know, I would give them a date, um, an age range for classes, and then I would just work with the school, and they would select the classes that I would um, be running workshops with, and the students as well. So I couldn't exactly say to them, um, you know, I want a student, and here's the checklist of kind of you know, experiences. It was it was broad enough that I was, uh, you know, interrogating the differences growing up in this atmosphere between Muslim and non-Muslim. But I, when I say that, um, I'm also conscious that, you know, that in those two broader camps, there's a lot of intersections there. Um, and so, you know, that came out for me in, in the research as well. Uh, you know, and meeting the students was, it was an incredible experience because I learned so much from them about, um, you know, what it means to go up for one thing, but also that I had my own expectations. I thought that, you know, all the, all the Muslim students I interviewed would have pretty much a similar experience of the war on terror and the surveillance gaze of the state. Um, but I was wrong. Class and gender had a huge, huge impact um, on people's experiences. And I, it sounds pretty obvious, but when you actually um, go out into the field, you realise intersectionality is not just a buzzword. It actually does drill down into young people's lives and does have a huge, you know, enormous impact on how they interact with the state, with the police, um, with the media. Mm. We're speaking with Dr Runda abdel Fataro about her brand-new book, Coming of Age in the War of Terror, which is out via New South Books. And, um, I mean, there's so much in this book that we could talk about, but one of the things um, that really stood out to me um, is in relation to uh, the, the, the government's counting violent extremism policies, which kind of have been um, rolled out in sort of various manifestations, I suppose, um, since 2001. And the ways in which um, particularly, uh, I guess, Muslim people and Muslim youth had... Uh, you know, could very easily kind of see or read the intent behind those policies and and the kind of assumptions built into them um, that almost were as if, uh, you know, Muslim youth, youth or Muslim people in Australia could potentially be on a conveyor belt towards extremism, to draw out one quote, just by the fact of really being Muslim and, and engaging in pretty normal everyday practices. I wonder if you can speak to how aware um, some of those those Muslim students were of, of these types of policies and what they were really saying about Muslim people and their um, particular position, I suppose, in Australian society. Yeah, so, I mean, I've got, teen, I've got uh, kids myself. I've got four kids and my, my eldest is 15 um, and the second is 12. So if I, if I were to ask them, um, and they're growing up in my house and I'm a very political person, um, you know, if I were to ask them, the details of policies, they would probably laugh in my face. So young people, you know, don't, don't most for the most part, aren't aware that these policies exist or the level of detail um, in these policies and actually how sinister um, and dangerous the policy wording is. They're more aware of the media representation mm. um, and the media headlines. Um, and that's part of the problem as well, that there's a lot that's happening in the policy um, space that impacts on young people and their families without young people and their families actually knowing um, 
how dangerous it is. So for, I can give you one example where, for example, I, I was looking at some press releases around some of the grants programs that were rolled out. And, you know, I can, I can say myself that at the beginning, most of us, including myself, were duped into thinking that these were about empowering communities and young people um, and, you know, teaching them skills such as public speaking or leadership skills or sports skills, you know, basically pouring money into communities um, to do all these sort of community-type um, empowerment sort of activities with the groups. But then when you looked, when I looked further into the details of how these press releases were released and written, um, they were... And the language of the policies, in order to obtain the grants funding, you had to show how this would, um, you know, be a part of countering violent extremism and radicalisation among the people that would be participating, that there was this idea that they were at risk. So if, if you are basically going into a school and running a media workshop, say, with Year 9 as part of this grant, what you are actually saying and stamping on this group is that these kids are at risk of radicalisation. So those kids don't know that, that they have been marked that way. Their parents who signed the consent forms wouldn't have known that. Possibly the teachers wouldn't even have known that. Sometimes we have to also be aware, and this is, I try to make a bigger point in the book, that it's, this isn't just affecting Muslim communities. This, it, the, the way that the neoliberal state operates now is that, you know, there's less and less money funded into community. And sometimes, and I know this personally from people within community, the only way they can get money to do the things they want to do is to, to sign up to these grants and manipulate wording um, so that they can pretend it's about CVE but actually get the money to go and do other work. Mm. Um, you know, and that's really dangerous, but you can understand how then the, the state withdraws funding um, from things it should and pushes people into that corner. And that, that for me, is really, really disturbing that, that there are communities that were whole-scale marked as at risk, um, you know, going off and doing uh, digital workshops and theatre um, and not realise that the impact that that has on them in terms of marking them as suspects. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, that insight that you have and, and that observation that, you know, others have, have made as well comes through in the responses from the young people. And as you say, you know, some of some young people describe, you know, their, their view of politics can be quite narrow maybe, but their understanding of it is quite profound and I think, you know, sophisticated in many ways. And, you know, I, I sort of quote from your book here, Fadi um, says, you know, I'm not afraid of terrorism, I'm afraid of being accused of being a terrorist. And then the lyrics, and I'd love you to tell this story, um, the lyrics that students wrote in response to hearing This Is America and watching that YouTube clip for the first time were really amazing. Like, I, I read all, all of the ones that you published in, in your book, um, Randa, and yeah. one, there's some themes coming out of there, like the, I mean, did you expect Indigenous sovereignty to be such a focus, um, you know, when they were asked to write about This Is Australia? I mean, that was, yeah, yeah maybe tell that story yeah. about how that came about, because they're, they're impressive, the lyrics that the students came up with. Oh, it was the best part of the entire three years of workshopping was um, that, that moment that I had when I was in the car, you know, waiting for a school and This Is America had dropped and I, I was watching it and I was just completely enthralled. And then I thought, oh, you know, why don't I get kids to um, write their own song lyrics to This Is Australia? And uh, it was 
incredible. And the, the, be- the beautiful thing about it was that I would go into the classrooms and say, who's political? And they would, you know, universally, no, no, not, pol- not political. All right, I would ask them, what's politics um, to you? Oh, you know, voting when you're 18, um, you know, Labour liberal. And then they would write these poems and they were so political. I mean, just, you know, searing and incisive and very funny. Um, and, you know, it's not to romanticise young people, but it's, it, I guess it's, and, you know, not everybody responded in the same way. But one thing that struck me was how, how we underestimate um, little gestures, uh, how we underestimate how small-scale, you know, ex- you know, expressions and small-scale small participation does matter and it should be validated and celebrated by young people. It, it can be just as important as casting your vote. The fact that you have an opinion about Indigenous sovereignty and, you know, domestic violence rates and, um, you know, the, the stereotypes we have about what Australian culture is, all of that, I think, is something that we should validate and, and have more of. And the irony is that we're in, in a government where, you know, the, the climate change protests by young people are ridiculed and we get, you know, stupid statements from the the Prime Minister and and education ministers about how we should have less protests and more education in schools. And, you know, I took my daughter to... um, my daughter and my son and my six-year-old to the Invasion Day rally this year. And, um, you know, I dragged them out of bed very early. Of course, they protested me taking them that early, but I said, no, we have to go because I knew that just being at that protest would probably be the equivalent of a year of me talking to them about it. And sure enough, just being at that protest and letting them um, see for themselves what it meant, my daughter came back and did uh, chose an assignment about Indigenous sovereignty. If I had asked her to do it, she would have said, no way, Mum, because I would have told, you know, <laughs> she's not going to listen to me. But to me, that is so important. And these students um, really made me realise how we should never underestimate or, or discredit the, the way that they express themselves politically. Yeah, as I was reading your book, I was reflecting on um, sort of my time at school and, and navigating these sort of types of issues. And I mean, I was 14 when um, uh, 9-11 happened. So in sort of the early yeah. years of high school and, and like so many people, I remember exactly kind of where it was and, and the immediate days afterwards. And, and there were, you know, some pretty shocking things said around the schoolyard um, in the wake of that, as, you know, a lot of kids tried to understand and, and make sense of, of the world when... And, um, you know, for, for me, I suppose, as a, as a white Australian, hadn't experienced that level of atrocity and, and war so much before, but we saw it all across our television screens. And there were, you know, really sort of terrible things said around that time. But there was absolutely no attention paid. Um, and this kind of possibly goes to the heart of your book about educating um, sort of all of us about understanding the world and, and having empathy for those around us who might be feeling pretty terrible um, due to the nature of some of the media reporting and that sort of thing that was going on at the time and has continued, you know, sort of very much since as well. I wonder what you think could sort of be done more broadly to um, facilitate better understanding and, and empathy throughout the community and the role of schools in that, I suppose, yeah. um, in, in helping students kind of come to terms and, and understand and navigate the world in a way that actually has a broader community value? Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an excellent question and it actually goes to the heart of sort of the, in, the activist and insurgent sort of instinct that I have when I write, which is, um, you know, what's the point of saying all this, you know, how, how can we affect change? And for me, it always comes back to 
curriculum and our education systems. You know, I'm in schools a lot and my kids are in school and I look at what they're, they're learning, I look at the curriculum and sure, the motherhood statements about, you know, being Asia literate and Indigenous, um, learning about Indigenous cultures is all there. I mean, on paper it all looks good, but when you actually look at what kids are learning and the framework in which curriculum is being delivered, it's still Eurocentric, it still privileges white histories, white ways of knowing, white, um, you know, points of view. Uh, you know, for me, it's not about trying to make the curriculum more diverse, but not changing the orientation of it. For me, it's really about thinking, well, you know, for, for students to actually sit in a classroom today in 2021, in this world that we live in, they need to understand white supremacy. They need to understand how we got here. They need to understand where everything is happening in the context of it happening on stolen land. Who are we as a nation? That means peeling it right back to our history. And then I look at the fact that my son, who's in year eight this year, and he comes home last week and tells me, um, oh, I'm so bored in humanities. And I'm like, why? It's like my favourite. <laughs> and he's like, we're learning about medieval history. And for me, like, I'm such a history nerd. I'm like, that's awesome. But at the same time, I know where he's going. And he's like, you know, I'm learning about how you know, in Europe, people ate pigs' blood. You know, what the hell, how is that relevant to my life? And I'm thinking, yeah, you know what, it's not. You know, learn about the, about the side of the world that wasn't in the Dark Ages at that time. And maybe when people understand the history of the world, then we, we wouldn't look at minorities in the way that we do. And that's why I think that there needs to be a, and I'm not the first person to say it, we do need to address it in our schools at the, at the, the, the level of curriculum so that people... They don't need to have a class in empathy. It's built into the curriculum because mm. they already understand the other point of view. That, that's central. I mean, you've spent so much time speaking with with young people, Rhonda, um, and, and obviously, you know, the example from your own family, um, is your sense that the students are ready and up for it and needing this and, and it's the other structures that need to be where the focus is, that um, those that do, you know, make these overarching decisions about what is on curriculum. I mean, really, a lot of these things are debated in, in parliaments as well of what, you know, what goes yeah. there. Is that is yeah. that where, where you see the changes happening because the students themselves, you know, in many respects seem to be ready for a lot of things um maybe well before those that make the decisions about them i think that the students that i met the overwhelming numbers of them were were ready and bored and wanting that kind of a change but i also think that there's a dangerous dangerous um element in the world we're living in today where there's you know, the rise of, you know, so-called alternative facts and conspiracy theories and misogyny online and, and you know, white supremacy. And that's infiltrating classes as well, um, you know, and that's also having a huge impact. You, you know, so even my son, you know, he's, like he's a beautiful boy and he's growing up like hearing me talk about feminism and anti-racism. But sometimes he lets out a joke that he's heard on, you know, a gaming website or something on TikTok and I think no way you can't say that you know that's that's wrong you know that's like that's misogynistic and he's like oh isn't it just a joke I'm like no like that whole sort of the the seduction of people like Jordan Peterson you know the websites breaking down and, and refuting feminism this is the the curriculum needs to respond to that as well you can't catch up with what students are seeing on TikTok and online um, what we are seeing on Twitter ourselves so I think you know the curriculum and, and teachers and, and education uh, are not understanding that the world that the world students are learning in is not just the world of the classroom, and they need to respond to what they are being exposed to outside. 
That is such a good way of putting it, talking about it in the catch-up um, sense. And if people do want to catch up, they can at least get your book uh, under Coming of Age in the War on Terror. It's out via New South Books. It came out this month. Um, really commend it to you. And um, thanks so much for giving us so much of your time this morning. It's been really wonderful having you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Randa Abdel-Fattah and, um, yeah, the author, as I said, of Coming of Age in the War on Terror. She has a big back catalogue as well, over a dozen books, and it sounds like a film coming out. So, yes. yep. Um, and, yeah, that's been great having her. Triple R. Huge relief for us in Melbourne and elsewhere across the state to have live music back again. The shows aren't quite as plentiful as they once were uh, before, of course, and we're more spaced out, but it's a huge improvement on the situation um, for much of last year as venues, recording and rehearsal spaces and festivals were all forced to put a stop to activities. But like so many things at the moment, it remains to be seen what the music sector in this state will look like once we're properly through the pandemic. A new study undertaken by RMIT has revealed that many of those employed in the Victorian music sector are considering leaving. It also highlighted the extent of the hardship experienced by those who lost work. The Victorian Music Development Office was one of the organisations who commissioned the study and to talk all about it, we're joined by their General Manager, Katie Stewart. Great to have you on Triple R, Katie. Great to be here, Dylan. And so as someone who works in the sector yourself, I'm sure you were expecting some pretty sober reading from this report. What really stood out to you when you were confronted with the findings? Yeah, that's right. So in our survey that we conducted um, during July and August last year, so that was during the second lockdown, one of the key findings was that three in five people said that they were considering leaving the industry. Another thing we found was uh, there were a lot of people who said the amount of time they would have to spend on their music work would need to decrease. So, you know, there's a substantial amount of musicians and music industry workers who are considering either scaling back um, significantly in terms of the music work that they do or leaving the music industry altogether, um, which is pretty concerning. Yeah, it is. And um, I mean, it'd be, it's important for us to understand, like, who did you speak to or who did RMIT speak to as part of this survey and how were they chosen and, um, and what sort of questions were they actually asked in order to elicit that the, the insights that you have? So uh, the survey went out uh, because our, uh, our remit at the Victorian Music uh, Development Office is to Victoria. It went out to Victorians who um, earn uh, some income from their work in music. So that could be musicians and music industry workers, but it, you know that the amount didn't matter so much more so that they um, were involved in the industry, um, you know, more so than, than just um, a hobby. Um, we interviewed close to, oh, sorry, we surveyed close to 300 people um, across July and August last year and then also did some extended surveys with a small group of people as well. Um, and it, it was quite interesting because, you know, the results are, are pretty staggering, but, you know, we know that the issues are certainly not unique to Victoria um, and we've had, um, you know, some further national findings come out, you know, particularly in the past week around uh, the open letter that was led by the music industry, um, you know, and some of that 
uh, data showed that live music was operating at about 4% of its pre-COVID mm. level. So um, it's, yeah, it, it's pretty um, astounding looking at the, the results from our uh, research and also that national data coming out to support how much the industry is still um, suffering today. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 was a huge disruption to the industry, but was there a sense at all from this this report that the pandemic might have exacerbated existing issues that have kind of been experienced by people employed in the sector or kind of generating the main revenue um, from the sector for a long time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have known um, pre-COVID that there certainly are uh, quite a few issues uh, surrounding the music industry and the conditions for people who work in it for musicians and music industry workers. Um, We know that the works, it's pretty precarious and a lot of people have portfolio-style careers where they take on many different jobs in order, um, you know, to, to make ends meet and, you know, to bring in various sources of income. And, you know, often the work is, it can be seasonal, seasonal it can be um, part-time, it, it's often interlinked with um, some other income, you know, people have part-time jobs working in hospitality or bars, um, you know, often that paints a picture for a, a large part of the music industry in order for them to make their careers work. Um, and that can be quite difficult for people to manage in terms of their financial security. Um, so, you know, when a, a huge crisis like COVID comes along, um, we have quite a vulnerable industry already as it stands. And it, it, it really shows that it doesn't take much for for things to topple over in terms of um, how stable people are feeling about their, their job and, and income and then, um, you know, how quickly um, all of that can be, be taken away from them. Yeah, and as you mentioned, um, last week was a big week when it comes to when it came to sort of news and I, I guess insights to where the music industry in particular is at the moment. And we've heard calls for an extension to JobKeeper and the like. I mean, what are you hoping will come from the survey or from the um, investigation that you've done with with RMIT, Katie? And I and I mean, I, I suppose is there an ask that comes of it, or, or is there more work that that the that your organisation um, needs to do now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the end of that report, we certainly um, have a number of, of key recommendations that we'd like to see, um, you know, to, to support the stability of the music industry ongoing. Um, respondents have spoken about the importance of ongoing support, um, you know, and particularly financial support. We have been quite fortunate here in Victoria that the level of um grants and support from the Victorian government has been pretty strong. We've got about 25 million in in grants for the music industry specifically so far and um, you know there's a significant funding round um, called Music Works closing today so um, that's been really positive but but certainly there is a a need for strong financial support ongoing. Um, You know the, the respondents also expressed um, the need for uh, support for music industry peak bodies such as Music Victoria and the BNDO to help uh, support the sector ongoing. Um, you know, and, 
you know, other recommendations coming from that support are around continuing the discussion about how do we improve conditions um, for music industry workers and musicians? How do we improve, um, you know, their pay and, you know, really, uh, you know, long and challenging hours and job insecurity? Um, And, you know, also how do we start to recognise the value of the music industry workers and musicians more and and start to, you know, foster a uh, understanding with audiences about, you know, how labour-intensive gigs are and how much work goes into, you know, that, that small pub gig down the road through to that, you know, multi-day festival that, that audiences value so much and all of the, the workers and all of the skill behind it, um, you know, and if we're in a position where we're going to lose uh, those skilled workers, um, we could see a a real significant ripple effect through the whole industry. Yeah, absolutely. Katie Stewart is our guest general manager at the Victorian Music Development Office talking about um, new research they've commissioned into how COVID-19 has impacted the Victorian music sector. And, I mean, other findings from your report include um, 80% of respondents saying their involvement in the industry would be different um, post-COVID-19. And I guess out of that and and the fact that um, I think over 50% said that they were seriously considering leaving the sector. Do you have a sense of of what people might leave to or whether they might be inclined to kind of pick up other work and decrease their involvement in in the music industry or just kind of get out of it entirely because it's, it's, you know, too stressful and too challenging to be part of at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we saw a variety of different answers. So, you know, it's it's quite um, likely that people may have to pick up more work in other areas and you know, with the hope of um, going back to the music industry. Um, but equally, we are risking people people leaving because, if, you know, they decide to make a change for, for, for other reasons, you know, better job security, um, you know, more sort of stable income, then we may, we may possibly lose them for good. And there's a brain drain that, that comes from that, I imagine. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... There are so many skilled workers that have been working in the industry for for decades, Um, and those, you know, that kind of knowledge and experience. Even though we do have, you know, incredibly passionate um, young people coming up wanting to work through the industry, it's also going to be um, really challenging for the industry to sort of sustain itself at the level that it's been at. um, If we're we're losing those. Um, talented and really uh, skilled, specific workers. I suppose, um, how hopeful are you feeling, Katie? I know that we've gone through a lot of findings here that, you know, don't, don't, don't fill me with hope, I guess. Um, but Melbourne has and is recognised as a world-class music city. Uh, do you feel that it will bounce back if the conditions um, were right? I feel... I do feel positive. I, I guess um, I personally and a lot of other people in the music industry, um, you know, have been attracted to working in the industry for a variety of reasons. And, you know, a lot of it is because of our love of music and, um, you know, the the, uh, the amazing, um, you know, social network and connections and, you know, lifelong friendships and relationships that come from the amazing mu- music industry. And I think... Um, 
you know, working in music industry is, is there's certainly a lot of passion tied to it, um, you know, which we found in a previous study as well. And, you know, people aren't, a lot of people aren't in it, you know, for the money, they're in it for the love. Um, and I think hopefully that, that may, may have the ability to sustain people a little bit through hard times, but, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be hopeful that, um, that we're able to get some ongoing support through this time where the industry hasn't been able to recover to its normal levels. Yeah, we'll um, share some of that hope and, and look forward to many, many more gigs and, and associated um, kind of industry hopefully um, coming back into full force um, in the not-too-distant future. Thanks so much for having a chat to us today on, on Triple R, Katie. Thank you so much. Katie Stewart, their General Manager of the Victorian Music Development Office, who commissioned a new report um, conducted or new research conducted by RMIT. Um, they jointly commissioned it with the Victorian Office for Women into the um, ways in which the Victorian music sector has been impacted by COVID-19. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.